Good afternoon. It's Thursday, the 23rd of June, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host today, Brian Gerrish. I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson from the Netherlands. Uh, we've also got our very own Debbie Evans, nursing correspondent, and we've got Mark Anderson joining us from the States. Well, let's kick off by having a look at uh, BBC News and the uh, really the story of the uh, disappearing Ukraine war. This is something we've been pointing out to viewers for some time, but uh, the little interesting saga uh, carries on. So this was uh, BBC's uh, news page from a little bit earlier this morning. Uh, let's just uh, make it into a video clip and see whether you can spot the headline on Ukraine. Uh, here we go. We should slowly scroll through. Of course, the uh, headline at the top is the uh, train strike. We've got quite a lot on train strikes. We've got newspapers. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, glossy pictures. We've got most watched. And uh, at the end of the day, it's uh, pretty difficult to see anything on Ukraine. Although, in fact, they do have a little clip there, uh, which you can clip on and it will take you to information on Ukraine. But the key point we're making is that uh, slowly but surely, as things get worse and worse for the Ukrainians, and effectively they are losing the war, uh, so the information about the Ukraine war is disappearing from the BBC's headlines. So uh, what else have we told viewers over the last few days? Well, I'd just like to bring on this gentleman, Admiral Sir Tony Radikin. We showed this little video clip a couple of days ago uh, where in an interview he said that Russia will never take control of, of Ukraine. Uh, he also said that Russia has strategically lost already. NATO is stronger. Finland and Sweden are looking to join. I want to contrast that statement from the Admiral uh, with this uh, Yahoo report, although this is re reported quite widely across the media at the moment. Replacing UK's weapons stockpiles could take, quote, years, said head of the armed forces. And uh, this is a little bit of it. On June the 16th, the former head of the Royal Navy, Lord West, described the UK's weapons stockpiles as insufficient and called for the country to start producing weapons almost on a 24-7 basis. And then later on, there was this quote, we could throw out a division now, but it's not the one we would want. And of course, it's not only uh, UK and Western media that's uh, picked up on this state of affairs, that the UK is effectively running out of weapons. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, the Russians and Russia today have picked up on it here. So UK weapons stockpile drained by Ukraine deliveries. It will take several years to replenish Britain's arsenal, the head of its armed forces admits. So, um, Alex, if I may, I'll bring you on here. I just find this incredible. We've got uh, um, Admiral Radikin, who was busy saying, well, Russia is going to lose. Um, we've got everything to do with Ukraine's victories being hyped up in the media. But the reality on the battlefield is they are losing at an increasingly uh, fast pace. And now we learn that uh, the West, because this is not only a problem for UK, the West, is running out of weapons. This is a pretty bad state of affairs. It can't be called anything other than a bad state of affairs, Brian, because the Russians have now, on enemy territory, against a home advantage, fought their way uphill 
in a heavily populated area with outer defenses that were in place for years already with the enemy dug in up to the commanding heights of the western part of the Donbass, which looks further into the cauldron uh, spread out in eastern Ukraine there behind the Donbass proper. And now we hear that the Ukrainians have run out of weapons and it is being admitted by the major sponsors. And without being too partisan with the inter-service rivalries, I think it would be fair enough to say that an, a hastily over-promoted Navy admiral, more than any other service, is likely to be short of appreciation, isn't he, as to just how long it's going to take to get the integrated air defences and land systems back in order, because this is a different production line than what he will be used to for the Royal Navy. Uh, that's a, absolutely a key point, um, Alex, because the reality is, of course, uh, there has to be a lot of work, tri-service work, to get members of uh, a particular armed force to understand the problems of other armed forces. And in this case, we've got a war in Ukraine, which is heavily army specialised. So um, Admiral Randikin will be at a severe disadvantage to start out with because he has no on the ground experience in, in himself. He has to rely on what other people are telling him. And clearly, well, in my opinion, he hasn't got the mental acumen to grasp the reality of this um, very, very severe battle on the ground in Ukraine. Now, Alex, you've been having a look at Lithuania, uh, which, of course, is a, another topic that's popped up. But many people are saying this is a very, very dangerous provocation of Russia. Yes. And uh, now the Lithuanian uh, public broadcaster LRT is reporting Prime Minister Ingrida uh, Shimonites' uh, address uh, to the effect that there is no blockade of the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad. And although the uh, stock image chosen on this page is her speaking to the parliament, the same us, these reports were not actually made to parliamentarians. If you tap that again, you will see the context of the remarks. So uh, what Shimonitia uh, said in a press call is there is no blockade of Kaliningrad. For those who weren't watching the news yesterday, this is the northern half of what was German East Prussia. The straight line at the bottom of it is because the Soviets and the Poles chopped it in half along a straight line at the end of the Second World War. Uh, Prime Minister Shimonitia says, it is just that since last weekend, sanctions have come into force. So this very loyally and commerce-friendly type of new Eastern European leader that we see a, a lot is blaming everything on sanctions and saying that, you know, much as with COVID, you know, the, the rules allow us to do anything and, and clamp down on anyone's freedoms. So likewise, a Lithuanian Prime Minister is saying now, there is no such thing as humanitarian or international law obligations. It's sanctions all the way. So she says that sanctions came into force on some of the goods that were being tra transported on rail freight uh, through Lithuanian territory between Kaliningrad and, uh, and the rump of Russia, Russia proper. And she says, so the railway uh, have been informed about the application of these sanctions and these goods cannot be loaded and transported. Tap it again and there's a further quotation. Um, Shimonitia says that the transportation of all other goods that are either unsanctioned or not yet subject to sanctions, is continuing, as is passenger transit, transit under a special agreement between the EU, Russia and Lithuania, somewhat akin to Britain and Ireland with their common travel area suddenly being overturned in practice through COVID regulations. You know, So treaty obligations uh, and international law obligations, obligations generally to let citizens pass through a territory on the way to their own country on the other side seem to have been over, overlooked. And she even says that it was mere goodwill 
that Lithuania didn't uh, blockade Russian passengers recently from transiting. Um, now, let's see what else is going on in the Baltic. The next slide is uh, a uh, Belarusian of Polish extraction, Tadeusz Gichan who is, um, this is a few days old now, in fact, a couple of weeks old. These are, he's covering Putin's remarks um, at the St. Petersburg event held to commemorate the legacy of Peter the Great. And uh, David Scott asked me to listen to the Russian audio uh, of Putin's uh, minute or, or so of address here, but I don't actually need to transcribe it because having listened to it, uh, Gichan has done an accurate job gisting it, not verbatim, but the key sentences. And this is what's got people in a flap in the Baltic that uh, Putin is saying he's being spun by the West and by the West's allies in, in northeastern Europe on Russia's border as if he were saying uh, we are going to flout international law and uh, repudiate the uh, recognition of territories. What he actually said, uh, Putin did, is that he's, he's referring to the Great Northern War around the year 1700 in which Russia reduced the size of Sweden's conquests in the Baltic. And Putin's remarks there, as covered by Gichan on screen, is that Peter the Great didn't conquer anything. He took back what had always belonged to us, even though all of Europe recognised it as Sweden's. Of course, it wasn't recognised Swedish territory, it was land conquered by the uh, expansionist Swedish army and governed as provinces. So there's a, a dishonest uh, you know, a, a comparison being, being made here. And Putin is made to say in the final sentence, it is accurate, but it's not the full context. Now it's our turn to get our lands back, he says. Uh, the next slide uh, covers more of the Baltic alarm that has been going on uh, recently, which uh, is... Alex, uh, Alex, if I may, just before we pop the next one up on screen, I'm going to say st straight away that the moment I read the headline, which we're about to see, I thought uh, somebody is beginning to panic. Uh, let's bring it up and... Uh, can, yes, uh, you're, you're right to say that, Brian, because we have been mocked and standing alone in Western media uh, for making the very point which the uh, permanent secretary, so the chief civil servant at the Estonian Ministry of Defence, so two countries up from Lithuania in those Baltic Republic corridors, uh, is, is making. So the, the permanent secretary of the Estonian Ministry of Defence, Kusti Salm, said, as covered by Defence One, uh, that having a tank battalion in each of these three small republics uh, is far too little to deter action from Russia. And this action is now what is being talked about by well-known long-term oppositionists in Russia, like Vladimir Zhirinovsky and others in the state's Duma, who are now openly saying it's time for us to cancel Lithuania's independence and just take it as a territory. So there is some real you know, suggestions of Russian expansionism here. We're, we're not whitewashing everything the Russians are, are telegraphing in their intentions. But at the bottom of that slide, uh, Kusti Salm says, it is a joke. Now, Estonians and other Eastern Europeans who learn good English tends to be blunter in their use of English than native speakers are, but sometimes that's a useful bluntness. And he is now actually saying that it's ridiculous and a joke to suggest that Russia, the second largest nuclear nation in the world, would somehow be deterred by one battalion. Brian, this is the point we have been making for a very long time, and that British troops and Canadian and US troops, are, uh, and Germans actually in Lithuania, are the dupes of this policy, aren't they? Uh, indeed, and I find it remarkable that these smaller states, uh, Lithuania being one of them, are, are effectively, or have been, poking the stick into the bear, Russia, without actually really thinking through the consequences. And I now think that they're beginning to get a bit hot under the collar because they realise that that NATO protection is nowhere near as powerful or comprehensive as they would like to think. Perhaps they've also been watching a bit too much of the BBC reporting. But um, Alex, what, what about the French position? 
Well, this isn't the French government, but is a very interesting marker, which uh, has been covered on uh, at least one French rumble channel called Résistance. Um, it is Pierre de Gaulle, the grandson of the uh, luminary, the, uh, the, the general turned president of post-war France. Um, and he addressed... Uh, on the Bastille Day, actually, sorry, not Bastille Day, that's 14th of July, but he addressed on the 14th of June um, the Russian embassy in Paris. And uh, he says he, he's here as uh, de Gaulle's grandson to embrace de Gaulle's determination uh, to have good relations with Russia. Of course, in de Gaulle's day, it was the Soviet Union. And the headline says uh, that uh, Pierre de Gaulle, the grandson, lamented the, uh, uh, the, the deplorable role of NATO and speaks about a US agenda. So perhaps we'll ask Mark for commentary in a moment. But if you tap that, the, the French remarks up on screen, which I'll summarize, is that in the meat of the speech, Pierre de Gaulle, which is only 10 minutes long or so, it was a kind of diplomatic level speech, Pierre de Gaulle says that everyone recognizes today that the US has a responsibility in the current conflict. The deplorable, or well, funest may be a bit weaker than deplorable, the, 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 the regrettable uh, or negative role of, of NATO, which has been uh, in, incessantly enlarging and the inconsiderate politics uh, of the Ukrainian government. And he goes on to say that the Ukrainian uh, government, um, high, uh, you know, wound up by, uh, by empty promises and, uh, and illusions by the Americans and the Europeans, has uh, carried out a reprehensible politics, which I think is no, nowhere too strong to say, um, with regard to the Russian-speaking population of the Donbass, um, with many instances of discrimination, plunder, uh, embargoes and bombardments. And he goes on to say in his grandfather's style, really, the French government has been captured and submitted to NATO and to, of course, he would put it this way, an American domination. I think there's a lot more Anglo in that than the, the just American. And he go, continues that um, the uh, Western, uh, Western forces have unfortunately allowed Zelensky, his oligarchs and his neo-Nazi military groups uh, to lock themselves into a war spiral but I wonder what Mark has to say about this particular French uh, fingering of America as the ultimate uh, culprit for winding Zelensky up. Well, Mark, welcome to UK Column News. Uh, we're certainly seeing cracks in the system. What do you think? Yes, um, it's good to see America being called out in this way, because if you go back to February 2014 and the overthrow of the pro-Russian leader of Ukraine at that time, and all the machinations of NATO, the EU, and, and the US, which really kind of runs NATO, it always has. Um, this is a, a good way for that to be able to talk about the fact that the US is wearing the white hats and that we share a responsibility in stirring the pot. And in the chain of events since then, it's created nothing but trouble. And so, um, yes, it, it's, it's good for people to hear this, to get an honest, objective view of things. Okay, thank you for that, Mark. Uh, Alex, uh, you're going to stay on the subject of France, I think, with a bit on Macron. Yes, uh, while General de Gaulle's grandson uh, speaks about France needing to retain uh, sovereignty in its foreign and defence policy, Macron is taking the opposite line, and he has spoken at one of these uh, uh, war uh, shows which happen every summer, 
Defence and Security trade show is the nice dressing up version of it. He's spoken to his fellow Europeans and told them to buy French. Well, he actually said buy European, but he means buy French uh, before you go to anywhere else, which, you know, the, the, the undertone would be before you buy American or Israeli weapons. And there he is in his clenched fist poses, his passionate Gallic uh, presidential pose but to put that back on screen and, and bring the text up and this is defense news in the u.s reporting so it's in english macron is quoted as having said france has entered into a war economy that i believe we will be in for a long time the next paragraph speaks about uh, france needing to invest further in its already europe's largest defense industrial base i think with the, the slashing of britain's industrial base that uh, that's that's in, uh, incontrovertible now france has the biggest defense industry in europe and will need to become more agile and innovative and he with a bit of finger wagging told his fellow europeans not to repeat previous mistakes uh, in other words chucking billions of euros at the northrop grumman's and the lockheeds of the world no he says we should spend a lot but we should think into about european strategic autonomy. So these two French statesmen of the current day are both selling the French people what they want to hear, uh, a souverainiste, you know, a, a self-dependent policy in, 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 in war and war materiel. But how they go about it is rather different, the one from the other. And uh, moving up north to the Netherlands, uh, we see that this has been covered by the Libertarian Institute on the slide I'm bringing up now. But it is actually remarks that have been covered by Reuters woman in The Hague. So it's straight from the event itself. Mark Rutte, the, the Dutch long-serving prime minister, shared the stage with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg um, and uh, last week on the 15th of June. And the headline, as covered by the Libertarian Institute from the Reuters write-up, is the Dutch PM says that NATO is using the Ukraine as a proxy against Russia. And again, as with the Estonian uh, Chief of Defence uh, Civil Service just now, Mr. Sullum, so Mr. Rutte, uh, is rather blunt in his English, and this is quite useful for us. So Rutter says, a Ukrainian victory, here's a telling phrase, may still be attainable. Hint, it is not looking likely, otherwise you wouldn't use this language. What's Rutter's proviso? If only NATO provides sufficient lethal aid, and lethal aid is in direct quotation marks. Rutter is quoted directly as having said, and I take it from Reuters that this is him in English, as it usually would be, in terms of weaponry, we stand united here that it is crucial for Russia to lose the war. And uh, the next bit is gisted that Rutter suggested that Ukraine, the Ukraine should serve as a conduit for Western arms in order to maximize pain inflicted on Moscow. So a war aim not of anything to do with international law, but a policy aim of making Russia hurt as much as possible. And finally, in bold on the screen is the direct quotation again. And as we cannot have a direct confrontation between NATO troops and Russia, says Prime Minister Rutter, what we need to do is make sure that Ukraine can fight that war that it has access to all the necessary weaponry. So it has been said in terms in the Netherlands, where I'm sitting now, by one of the most uh, pro-Anglo uh, of continental countries, that what we're doing here is making sure that Russia suffers a war by proxy. Uh, incredible. And particularly, as we've just learned, that, that the UK is running out of weapons. And this is the pattern across uh, Europe. We haven't got more weapons to give uh, Ukraine. They've swallowed up all the weapons they've been given to date. And even the US has got a resupply problem because it hasn't got the industrial base to produce the weapons necessary to prosecute the war. So we're looking at complete breakdown, it seems to me, in the EU and indeed across NATO, because the politicians simply don't understand the reality of the situation. We do not have the weapons to supply to Ukraine to allow them to fight the Russians and win. And the Ukrainians have no longer got an army. So presumably it's going to take a bit of time, a bit more time to dawn on them, but we'll we'll watch. 
Um, well, let's bring this one on screen. Uh, Linda, who's been a long, a very long-standing supporter of the UK column, has been in communication with the Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office. And let's have a look at this uh, little email exchange. She's thanking them for their reply. She says, I'm concerned to learn the PM as Foreign Secretary met with a Polish Foreign Minister on a joint trip to Ukraine in 2017. This was to cement UK and Polish commitment to, to Ukraine. Was this the start of interference in another state? Also, your reply states the UK is not supporting British nationals going to Ukraine to fight in the conflict. I beg to differ. The Home Secretary made no secret of her support, clearly heard here with a link. Why the rapid change in policy? You also state the prisoners were entitled to POW status. How so when Britain is not at war? I look forward to your response. And I think Linda was a bit surprised. She did get a response back. Here we are. Uh, it's from Russia and Ukrainian crisis team. So obviously somebody, I think, was stung into action. This is what they said. Thank you for your email of 17th of June about UK and Polish commitment to Ukraine and British nationals going to Ukraine to fight in the conflict. As a free and democratic country, Ukraine has the right to determine its own future to ensure the security and defense of our allies. We will continue to work together to make sure that Russia cannot further undermine European stability. The Prime Minister has committed to President Zelensky that the UK will continue working with international partners to provide the assistance necessary to help Ukraine defend itself. The UK has now committed 1.55 billion in military assistance to Ukraine. The Ukrainian Foreign Ministry has made clear that the two British national detainees are in the Ukrainian armed forces and therefore are classified as prisoners of war under the Geneva Conventions. All prisoners of war should be treated humanely in accordance with the requirements of international humanitarian law. Combatants are entitled to combatant immunity, meaning they may not be prosecuted for participation in hostilities. Well, I find all of this reply fascinating. Alex, just very quickly, um, there's so much here because they don't really want to talk about what was going on in those talks with Poland. But 1.55 billion of, of military assistance to Ukraine, which has simply been wiped out. It's uh, no longer in action at the front because it's either been lost, sold on or destroyed by the Russians. And uh, the UK government clearly doesn't want to say too much about mercenaries. Uh, because they've no control over the situation if they don't engage in a dialogue with uh, um, the uh, eastern Ukrainian states. What's your thoughts? Did you notice the weasel wording there, Brian? The FCO, or FCDO as it now is, the Foreign Office, has not said, because it wouldn't have got it past its own internal lawyers, who are some of the least corrupt people in the FCDO in my experience, uh, they have not said, we are certain that these men meet the criteria for the Geneva, uh, under the Geneva Convention and the 1977 Protocol on Mercenaries to be treated as regular troops entitled to uh, Geneva Convention protections and respect. They've said at the beginning of the last paragraph of that response that the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry has, quote, made clear, in other words, declared, that the uh, two men in question, the British men, 
are in the Ukrainian armed forces, which of course is not only a partisan declaration by one of the parties to the conflict, but is also retrospective. It's in hindsight after their capture. And therefore, right, there's no, there's no grammar there. So this has to be the Ukrainians being quoted by the Foreign Office again. And therefore, says the Foreign Office, the Ukrainians are telling us that they are classified as prisoners of war under the Geneva Conventions. So as with Lavrov the other day saying in his interview, look at the 1977 wording of the protocol to the much earlier Geneva Convention, uh, that hasn't that boat hasn't been rocked. It's just been sidestepped. Yes, in, interesting, very interesting. Uh, well, just very quickly for you, Mark, um, American Free Press, latest edition, is holding a headline that US mercenaries have been nabbed in Ukraine. Uh, we can't go into a lot of detail. We don't, unfortunately, don't have the time, but... Uh, the problem of these uh, for, uh, mercenaries, people going abroad to fight and be paid for it. This is hitting home to a large number of countries, but of course, Canada, uh, the UK and the US in particular um, have had a significant number of men on the ground. And now the Russians are dealing with them pretty severely. In fact, it's the independent Ukrainian states that are dealing with them severely. Um, there's a little bit of squealing started. Yeah, this is an article we just brought out. In fact, this is just going to bed today. It's going to print today. So this is an advanced look at this article. And yeah, two U.S. mercenaries, Alexander Drecki and Andy Hoyne, I guess I'll pronounce it, are the latest who were captured. And that's on top of two Brits and a Moroccan. So you've got these soldiers of fortune um, trying to make their fortune in this conflict. Uh, almost like musicians showing up for a gig, but instead of a guitar in their case, they have a gun in their case. And uh, they don't have to be treated according to the normal norms, and they can face even the death penalty according to this article. So it's a pretty serious matter. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, it's tragic for everybody concerned, but um, my personal opinion is that these men are not going to be treated lightly by uh, either the, the Russians or, or the Ukrainians from the eastern states, uh, but we'll see what happens in the near future. Now, we're just going to move sideways slightly, but um, can we trust our own governments, whether it's the UK or the US, to tell the truth? Uh, my feeling is we certainly can't anymore. Um, you've got a little segment here, Alex, uh, going back to the Falklands War. Tell us about it. The British viewers and the older ones will remember that the war ended 40 years ago this month in what was midwinter down there in the Falkland Islands. And uh, there was a, a pre-war uh, on the ground phase during which the Royal Navy's task force was moving down to the South Atlantic and US Secretary of State or Foreign Minister in other countries' parlance, Alexander Haig, was frantically trying to arrange a peace plan using Peru as an intermediary at this time. And that is the time at which the General Belgrano um, as a, a, an Argentine uh, Second World War era um, uh, aircraft carrier with its group around it was sunk by the British before the boots had gone onto the ground in the Falkland Islands to recapture them from the Argentines. And this is something which is being uh, discussed here uh, in a very interesting uh, interview which uh, is, it has been produced by Johnny Vedmore on Rockfin and his interviewee is Paul Cardin. So we'll put that on screen. Paul Cardin was a radio 
operative on the HMS Yarmouth, which a little later than that found herself in the San Carlos Sound or Bomb Alley between West and East Falkland, trying to put the troops ashore and being suffering great grave damage all those vessels in the process because they were sitting ducks. And for those who are listening in audio, you can go direct to rockfin.com slash post slash 89136 and listen to this excellent interview. So Paul Cardin has written in time for the 40th anniversary of the end of the war, his uh, book based on his diary of events as he sat there on HMS Yarmouth. And he's talking about the sinking of the Belgrano in the first clip. Of course, the mainstream understanding of that is that it was a legitimate target, we were told. And Mrs. Thatcher's husband, Dennis, famously uh, handbagged the BBC after Mrs. Thatcher was confronted in a, in a phone-in with the public about this sinking of the Belgrano while the Peruvian peace plan was still on the table with Haig as a US honest broker. Uh, but we're now finding from Cardin, who was on the HMS Yarmouth at the time, and other servicemen of his time, that there's rather more to it than that. So let's listen first to, the, to what he says about the sinking of the Belgrano. And the Belgrano, that, that was armed with, I think it was 12 or 15, six inch guns, huge guns, um, and 10, five inch guns. And it was it was armed like that because it was built for the Second World War for the sort of battles that they had then, ship against ship. You know, yeah. they would tear each other apart with with that that type of uh, those kind of arms. The problem being, the Belgrano would have had to reduce its distance from the task force by 336 miles to bring us within range of its guns. And if it had done that, it could have really caused a lot of damage but in my opinion it could never have done that it would never have been given the chance to to do that i mean it wasn't given the chance because it, it got sunk when it was 350 miles away it's my position that it wasn't a threat then when it was sunk sandy woodward took 10 years to tell us that it was a threat it, you know it took him that long to get his ducks in a row and tell us that, that there was this threat and everyone believes that not everyone but most people believe that, and the media, they all believe that now, that that was the threat. So he's referring there to Rear Admiral Sandy Woodward, who was bigged up by the BBC during the war itself as the great commander of the task force. And it took him, as, as Paul Cardin says, 10 years to, until 1992 to say, well, actually, she was outside the exclusion zone, but we had to sink her because of intelligence that I can't really divulge to you. But then after the sinking of the Belgrano, and it seems that Her Majesty's government wanted this war, is, is the long and the short of what Cardin and others have been saying. We don't have time to go through the various rabbit holes, but there are several pointing that way. Um, after the sinking of the Belgrano, the next episode was that HMS Sheffield was bombed using French-supplied exosets because France and Israel, our great allies, were continuing to arm the Argentines before and during that war in the case of the Israelis, uh, before in the case of the French. And so HMS Sheffield had a horrendous blaze, as the Sir Galahad had later with the Welsh Guards on board, with a tremendous loss of life and suffering. And uh, Yarmouth, uh, Paul Cardin's vessel, was called over to assist in the putting out of the fire on the Sheffield. He couldn't, or the vessel couldn't, because of the intense heat radiating from the decks of the Sheffield. But listen to what he has to say about him and his uh, uh, comrades spotting a submarine in the waters around HMS Sheffield. The very next thing that happened after the, the Algorano was sunk was the Sheffield was hit by an exofet. Mm. We were only a mile away from that, so we went to, to help and we were firefighting and everything, and it was just, the heat was just too intense, mm -hmm. and we had to pull away. And we actually picked at, at that point we we detected a submarine, and to this day we don't know 
We don't think it was an Argentine submarine. Um, we think it could have been a Russian submarine. Mm-hmm. And we picked up torpedoes that were fired at us as well. All this has been poo-pooed by the MOD because the MOD don't believe that uh, the Argentinians could ever have mounted a, co- a coordinated exocet and submarine attack against wow. attack force. So they've always said, no way was that submarine. You, you, you dreamt that, whatever. But I'll tell you what, our, 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 uh, our uh, flight commander, who was the, um, the pilot of our WASP helicopter, he went up uh, while the Sheffield was uh, there on fire and he saw the submarine. He actually saw it and he came straight back to tell the captain, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we know there was a submarine there. So just to wrap up this segment quickly, we could go down to all the historic channels, but we don't have time. Uh, Paul Cardin maintains a blog on Substack, like so many interesting people these days. And uh, he has eight questions in, that he's asked in recent Substack posts. Why wasn't it reported that Falklands land was owned by absentee landlords? Uh, uh, why was the Peruvian uh, telegram to London delayed by 17 hours when he as a radio operative knew better than anyone else that the, the transmission would have been instant? Why has that been kept under lock and key for many years and not disclosed in the National Archives? Why did Admiral Woodward suggest that the Belgrano was part of a pincer movement when she was well outside the scope of action? Uh, why were the telegrams suppressed? And he has another four. And this is before we get into questions of oil and gas and the role of Lord Carrington before the war. But if you tap that again, questions five to eight will come up. Uh, Why did Nicholas Ridley, who had hobnobbed uh, secretly the previous year in Geneva with the Argentines, uh, offer the Argentines sovereignty and a 99-year leaseback deal where we would basically rent the Falklands to save the feelings of the islanders? Why was Britain still selling arms to the junta, so not just France and Israel, but we ourselves, just four days before the invasion? Did Thatcher's defence cuts, this is the John Knott cuts, of course, the beginning of the European Union military unification project run by Whitehall and the city. Why did these defence cuts or did these defence cuts leave the junta, uh, Galtieri's junta, with the impression that an invasion would be uncontested? And that there are many other indications of that. Vessels were pulled out and garrisons cut in the Falklands before the war. And finally, what were these thousand pounders that Paul Cardin heard rumours of, or big bombs going off during the conflict? Were they nuclear death charges and the breach of the anti-nuclear treaty in South America? Much to get into there, but the final tap will bring up his book, which is the the diary that he kept as as now written up by him called Return to Bomb Alley 1982 The Falklands Deception by Paul Cardin it resonates with everything that I've heard uh, during and after my GCHQ time about unanswered questions in this war and to answer the question at the beginning of the segment no we cannot trust the MOD or senior ministers such as defence and and foreign secretaries because of their track record in this regard Alex, uh, thank you very much for that. A number of very interesting points. I think we'll have to save the detail for uh, a time in the future. But yes, there's much to be discussed. Can we trust our politicians? I think the answer to that is no. But let's just finish off with uh, uh, Ukraine and all about Ukraine. I'm very interested to see this uh, tweet for the Ministry of Defence that went out June the 17th. UK-Ukraine Infrastructure Summit Explained. Um, The Infrastructure Summit will bring together businesses and conflict zone experts to help plan Ukraine's reconstruction. This is fascinating because they haven't won the war yet, but uh, here was the dialogue to uh, carry out Ukraine's reconstruction. It aims to build Ukraine's support by sharing UK expertise from working in post-conflict zones, identifying where UK firms can assist rebuilding efforts. And of course, this is the meat of it because in are going to come the private companies to hoover up the profit 
in uh, rebuilding, but at the moment the war's still running. So presumably somebody had a, an amazing crystal ball here. Uh, the UK and Ukraine will sign a memorandum of understanding to outline the UK support for reconstruction efforts. And uh, well, that's all good, isn't it? Because um, it's, it's all about partnerships at the end of the day. And maybe this is a bit of Ukrainian build back better, but I may be being cynical there. But just fascinating that we can be talk about we can talk about reconstructing Ukraine when the war has not been won by Ukraine, and the reality is it will not be won by Ukraine. Uh, this is the real document it all links through. So this is well, this is the press release from gov.uk. UK pledges support to help Ukraine rebuild post conflict, and then it says the International Trade Secretary hosts high-level talks on how the international community can help rebuild Ukraine after the conflict. And what's interesting about this is this is a package for three billion. So we've just heard about one and a half billion of pumping in the weapons in order to destroy the country. Now UK can stump up three billion to help build it all back up again. Many people would describe this as a racket, and I think I would agree with them. Um, but uh, a lot of questions to be asked. So here's Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the International Trade Secretary herself. Apologies from the typo at the bottom there, but uh, this is what she said in that uh, gov.uk um, press release. We've all seen the heart-wrenching images of the destruction uh, to the great city of Kiev, the thousands of homes, buildings, critical infrastructure across Ukraine that have been destroyed. Throughout this, the great people of Ukraine have shown immeasurable strength and courage and we stand with them in hope of a brighter future. That is why it is important to talk about a post-conflict Ukraine. And today we're making our commitment clear to help it rebuild in peace. I'm just going to interject here and say, I would have thought that you would have had to have some sort of peace talks before you could even be talking in this language, but apparently not in uh, UK in 2022. She goes on, our world-class infrastructure and energy companies along with businesses in fields like transport, healthcare and agriculture, are not just well-placed to support the immediate humanitarian response, they're in a strong position to play a part in Ukraine's longer-term reconstruction too. So here's all of the big profit boys lining up to get going in Ukraine, but we still haven't won the war. Uh, together, we can help Ukraine to build back better, stronger and greener. Um, I'm looking at your face, Alex, very quick, but uh, this is astonishing stuff that we're having dialogues about rebuilding Ukraine, while at the same time we're pumping in the weapons to ensure it's fully destroyed. Well, I visited the Ukraine often, most latterly, just a few months before the war broke out. And in all of those fields, transport, healthcare and agriculture, I had the distinct impression in various parts of the country that the Ukrainians had it better than we did. So if they have a need for a British rebuild, as with Serbia 20 years ago, it's because they were set up for a fall, isn't it? I noticed when talking about the great people of Kiev and the great city of Kiev, she didn't do, do the trifecta and mention the great gate of Kiev. Perhaps that would have been just a bit too comedic. Um, uh, probably. I'm, I'm going to pop this one up on screen just to rub it in, because if we, we add a bit, she didn't say the first bit, but the British government, having worked to destabilise Ukraine and foment war to destroy it, we can now say together, uh, we can help Ukraine to build back better. I mean, this is just, uh, it is disgusting. I can't think of any other word to put on it. 
And of course, all these companies will come in feeding off the money that's been loaned to Ukraine in order to make huge profits. So this is the world. Mark, let's move on to the States. And uh, you wanted to talk to us about uh, the subject of school protective measures. And uh, we've got a couple of articles that you've written for American Free Press here. The first one, Common Sense Effective Measures to Protect Schools Being Ignored. I'll just expand that one a little bit so that viewers can freeze the screen and have a look at some of the text. But what, what are you commenting on here? Well, this is an important update and a deeper look at the post-Uvalde school shooting situation. <clears throat> and the plot thickens and the mysteries continue to deepen. Um, amid all that, the U.S. House, as this article starts to say, on June 8th passed H.R. 7910, and that's the Protect Our Kids Act, and that's supposed to, you know, make schools and society safer by controlling guns more and really ultimately infringing on the Second Amendment. Now, that bill was passed 223 to 204 uh, in the response to the Uvalde school shooting, which was May 24th. And just recently, in fact, yesterday, the Senate, in kind of an unexpected fashion, <clears throat> made a preliminary vote, a procedural vote, and pass similar legislation on the Senate side. But what this article is about is the background. And the background to this is the involvement of private players and the involvement of the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, because they're trying to recast gun control and gun violence as a health issue. And every town for gun safety, or every town for short, is the name of an organization, a 501c3 nonprofit founded in 2013 by uh, that, that um, global mayor, Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York. He, of course, is very involved in the uh, global mayor's movement and the global cities movement. And in fact, ultimately, this will tie into that, in my opinion, that <clears throat> gun control will become a cities thing, a global cities thing. And that's part of the mission of every town for guns for gun safety, or again, every town for short. And one of the odd things, as this article explains, Brian, is that every town, as it's known, rejects arming teachers. And they do this by using a deceptive argument. They say, well, teachers don't have the training, they don't have the wherewithal, they just don't have the right stuff to be armed and protect kids in the, in the event of an armed shooter, uh, uh, excuse me, an active shooter event. And so uh, they go on to say, uh, um, there's a false idea that arming teachers and school staff will make our schools safe. In fact, an armed teacher cannot, in a moment of extreme duress, be expected to transform into a specially trained law enforcement officer. An armed teacher, uh, every town goes on to say, is more likely to shoot a student bystander or be shot by responding law enforcement than it is to stop an active shooter. But what's misleading here, extremely misleading, is that the school marshal program, which is the most popular and the most uh, practical of ways to protect a school, uh, did not actually focus on arming teachers and staff primarily. The school marshal program, and I covered it when it first uh, was born in Texas in 2013, 
I interviewed Representative Jason Biaba, who since stepped down from the Texas legislature. He's a Dallas area attorney. And he told me uh, in a uh, interview that the idea of a school marshal program to protect schools from active shooters was not primarily focused on teachers and staff at all, but would hire retired police, uh, sheriffs, uh, reserve officers, which are part-timers, and also retired military, as well as members of the community who are well-known and trusted and very adept at handling firearms. So the school marshal program was only adopted by 84 districts out of 1,200 in Texas so far, even though it was born back in 2013 when I first started covering it. But the thing is, is the, the mass media has mischaracterized it all along, making it sound like, oh, you want to arm teachers, you want to arm teachers, they can't handle it, they can't handle it. But that was never the primary intent of the school marshal program to begin with. And so this article explains a lot of that and, and explains that actually it would be very workable, at least as a stopgap measure until we figure out the, the deeper recesses of these school shootings. It would be very workable to have one, maybe two well-armed, well-trained um, school marshals at each entrance of a school and also at the main gate outside, um, at least at schools that have outside gates. And that this would be, um, with everyone having walkie-talkies and ways to communicate with one another, this would be almost a surefire way to keep any school shooter from doing anything, from, from carrying out any harm. And so there's, the, there's been this mischaracterization all along, but now along comes some of the globalist and global cities entities, including the Aspen Institute, because besides the founder of Everytown being Michael Bloomberg, the president of Everytown is Jonathan Feinblatt or John Feinblatt. He's been featured prominently on the website of the Aspen Institute, another infamous globalist institution and the Aspen Institute is funded largely by the Carnegie Corporation, the Rockefeller Brothers Funds, and the Gates and Ford Foundations. And they have lots of articles. Uh, their, their website is replete with articles on um, ending gun violence and treating it as a healthcare issue. And the CDC uh, of COVID uh, fame, or you might say COVID infamy, has become involved and in fact, Christopher Barsotti, MD, co-founder and director of the American Foundation for Firearm Injury Prevention in Medicine, at the at the Aspen, excuse me, at the Aspen Institute, met in the fall of 2021 with CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky, and so it shows how the Aspen Institute and the CDC are getting involved to try and mold the firearms issue into a public health issue. And I wouldn't say that that's altogether inaccurate, but what I would say is they're trying to leverage that to find another way to come at the Second Amendment. And that's what this article is basically reporting. So you've got a lot of private uh, actors or private players in this thing that have been working behind the scenes for years to, uh, to discredit the idea that schools can protect themselves, to recast this as a health issue, uh, it's headed for being a global cities issue, as I mentioned a little earlier. And and that's that's some of the deeper stuff that you never hear in the mass media cartel. They just don't talk about the machinations that that mold gun control bills, that mold gun control policy, 
or that keep workable policies like school marshals from ever taking effect. They just they actually discourage things that could solve the problem. Uh, so Mark, that's the sum total or the sum message of that article. Mark, thank you very, very much for that. While you were talking through, I'm thinking of this mix and match between health and security, which we've also got appearing in UK. We now have health security. What are we talking about? Are we talking about health matters or are we talking about security? The play on the words is very powerful. So you're describing, uh, we'll call them dark actors behind the scenes, manipulating at least some of the factors around this very tragic incident. Uh, but you've got another article here about officials hiding the truth. Let's just expand this one on screen. And um, I find this absolutely fascinating uh, because I'm now starting to read material in a variety of other places where they're saying that what we, uh, what we were told about this incident at the outset now appears to be not quite the whole truth. Yeah, it's not just incomplete information, it's conflicting information, and some of it is literally not believable. This article is mainly about Texas authorities refusing to release public records that document what law enforcement said happened May 24 regarding the reported shooting at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. And this is a policy, by the way, which may spark the very conspiracy theories that those same authorities claim they are seeking to quell. They're, they're always doing that. They give you every reason to, to suspect deeper, more sinister matters. And then out of the other side of their mouth, they say, how dare you suspect there are deeper matters? But as I just described in the other article uh, with Michael Bloomberg and the Aspen Institute and the CDC, there are deeper machinations, not always sinister, but very manipulative and things that people generally don't know enough about. And they can't make honest decisions or assessments about these events. Now, what's really weird here, Brian, is that as this article was going to bed, the the, uh, a couple select media outlets, such as the Texas Tribune, KVUE, KVU, God, let me get this right, KVUE, it's called KVU. That's an ABC affiliate, I believe, in Austin, Texas, a TV affiliate, and also a partner of KVU, the Austin American Statesman Daily Newspaper. All three of them, get this, claim to have seen exclusive footage from the internal cameras inside the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. But when KVU talked about it with their reporter, Tony Plahetsky, he described what he saw in the video, but KVU did not show the video clip of the shooting to its audience as Tony spoke. So we had to rely on his account, take his word for it on what is in this alleged video. And so the Austin American Statesman, in partnership with KVU, also, and all, along with the Texas Tribune, which is a nonprofit based in Texas, all of those outlets claim to have seen this video footage of the shooting that no one else has seen. And out of the other side of their mouth, they say, well, Texas authorities are withholding data. And yet at the same time, th those media outlets are saying, but we got some of that data. You can't see it. We saw it. We read some of the police transcripts. We read some of the police communications. We saw these video clips, but we won't show that to the public. So there's this strange dichotomy that Texas is being too tight-lipped about the data and, and the information about the shooting. But on the other hand, these media outlets were granted extreme exclusivity on 
seeing and accessing video footage and some of that data. And it's all, it's all very strange, and I'm still analyzing it, but the questions that revolve around this and what you're showing there is that the Senate just acted on this yesterday after the House voted on their side of it on June 8th, as I mentioned earlier. But some of the questions that are not being asked by these media outlets that got all this exclusive data include the following. How did a burger flipping high school dropout afford approximately five grand needed to buy two AR-15 style rifles, hundreds of rounds of ammunition and body armor, having just turned 18 on May 16th? Why did he buy two firearms? How did the alleged shooter, Salvador Ramos, who's now deceased, we're told, how did he, excuse me, how did he achieve sufficient confidence and competence with such firearms just a week before the shooting, so much so, so much so that he was able to resist reported efforts by an unspecified number of trained police officers who apparently were in or near the school upon the shooter's arrival and tried to subdue him uh, via pistol fire. So he already has the skills to, to win a fight with trained police only a week after getting these firearms. Was Ramos ever seen at a shooting range prior to May 24 practicing with these firearms? Did he receive any training in utilizing and operating these firearms? And what happened to the initial account of an off-duty Border Patrol officer getting a haircut nearby, receiving a text message from his wife, who we're told worked at the school, and then he grabbed a shotgun from the barber's premises before going to, to the school to successfully take out the shooter? How did that suddenly change into an entire Border Patrol tactical unit uh, entering the school, but not doing so until 12.50 p.m. and killing the suspect? So a huge change in the story there. And what happened to earlier aerial footage of state police vehicles chasing Ramos in his dark gray Ford pickup that he drove as he entered the building and crashing it into a concrete-lined uh, narrow ravine, roughly 100 yards from the school? In other words... The police were chasing him before the shooting ever happened. What is it the police knew about Ramos before they ever knew there was going to be a school shooting? They chased him to the school. Therefore, there were already several police on the premises when he entered the school. Why weren't they able to stop him? And there's all the controversy about the door he went in, whether it was locked or not. We'll leave that alone. But the police already suspected him of numerous things before the shooting ever took place and that's what really needs to be known and that's what these media with all with all this exclusive data those are the questions they are not asking all they're doing is uh, is doubling down on the narrative that the police botched the situation the police failed to protect the kids and that evidently is true and there's a lot of things that need to be uh, explained some heads need to roll perhaps but all these broader, deeper questions are completely ignored, again, by media that claim to have an inside track. And I'll add the, the real humdinger is, the, the real kicker on all of this is that when this had first happened, the people were actually told, the parents were actually told that some of the kids were shot so severely in the face that they were literally beyond recognition and they couldn't identify them and they had to use DNA to identify some of the kids. Now that just doesn't hold water at all. Any parent would know who their kids were, whether they were completely disfigured or not. The same kids meet in the same school every day. Even if they were disfigured, they would know who they were. 
uh, just by the process of elimination, by narrowing it down, by the way they dress, by other kids being able to identify them. So parents were told these, these cock and bull stories like that, uh, which are really bizarre. And that, that's why there's such a, a, a mysterious situation here, because the media, again, claims to have such an inside track, and yet myriad questions go unanswered. And, well, and strange claims like what, like what I just mentioned are never explained. So just what exactly was this event is what it boils down to. Mark, thank you very much for that. Uh, there are so many questions. I know that you're going to stay on the case uh, asking many of those questions around this particular incident. And I think we'd like to say to you, we hope you'll come back and give us more detail about this. But we're in a serious position when the wider public, be it in the US or the UK, cannot trust reports that are coming out in media when, when the incident is basically being handled by government officials. This is the real crux of it. But we would love to have you back to tell us more about that. We'll take uh, a break there and say uh, thank you to all of our supporters. If you're a member of the UK column or you're donating to us, that is very much appreciated. We can only do what we do with your help and support. Do join us, uh, join into the community and, of course, benefit from UK Column News Extra Time, which we cannot do today, uh, I'm afraid to say, but that's one of the normal perks for uh, the community. Uh, also, if you feel like doing a little bit of shopping, have a look in the UK Column Shop, where we have a number of items which are proving to be attractive and uh, clearly many people would like to own a UK column t-shirt or one of the new bags. And the key thing is that all the material that we're putting out, we would like people to share uh, because uh, the whole point is, is to get facts and the truth out as far and as far and as wide as we can. So Alex, we'll just bring you back very briefly because um, you've had some positive comments from a uh, a Dutch viewer, I think, if we pop this one up on screen. Tell us about it. Two separate Dutch viewers and their appreciation is specifically for Mark and for Debbie. So I thought we'd have this today. So Joriana here is reporting on the 17th of June episode and says once again, it was a very informative episode of UK Column News, particularly at the 37 minute mark where WHO tyranny imminent, that's Mark's article for us, was discussed and 43 minutes in where he talked about global cities. And the Netherlands has got a really advanced global cities and global mayors uh, plans. And uh, this, this Dutch woman gives the not inconsiderable compliment, given that, that Mark's uh, commentary for us uh, gives us uh, gives the Dutch a new perspective on certain mayors, meaning Dutch mayors. And if you tap again, we will see in the other corner of the screen another Dutch lady, Paula de Boer, uh, saying that, and this is more Debbie's uh, coverage, saying that this episode of UK Column News, the same one, makes it quite clear that the World Health Organization is being steered or directed, you could also translate it, by the likes of Boris Johnson, but also our Prime Minister, Mark Rutte. And she says that on the 1st of June this year, there was a video conference at the WHO in which this lot, days allow, this lot were pushing for the WHO to have total authority. So the message is getting through to the Dutch at least. Okay, Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, let's uh, bring in Debbie Evans. Debbie, thank you very much for waiting patiently, but you've got a very interesting segment for us today on the MHRA. 
apologies if I lose you because uh, my computer is on charge and it's losing charge quicker than it's picking it up. I'm worried that I'm about to lose charge. So if I, if you lose me, that might be why. Okay, well, don't worry about that, uh, Debbie. Stay as long as you have power. No doubt if you're losing energy, that will be the direct result of a decision by uh, President Putin. He's probably targeting Cornwall at this very moment. So um, the MHRA, of course, we've been pointing out for a very long time because we say they're absolutely not doing their job. Uh, one of the issues that you've highlighted is, of course, when we're dealing with the MHRA and also the Health Security Agency, uh, you're never too sure what you're dealing with. Is this a government body to protect ordinary people or is it wider than that? And of course, one of the things that both these two organisations employ is non-executive directors. And uh, you're going to make a little bit of comment, I think, on a about a lady called Raj Long, who is active with the MHRA. Yeah, I am, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try and be quick in case the charge disappears. But Raj Long is a non-executive uh, director of the MHRA. Um, she's Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She's she's a nobody really. Her professional um, her CV says that she's had a professional career in medicines and vaccine development. She's not a doctor. She's worked with who? She's worked with Bill Gates. She's written all of health's documents on dementia. We're following her, have no clue why. Um, and let's not forget too, dementia, Moderna will be rolling out mRNA vaccines for dementia. So Raj Long has now been appointed to the UK HSA. And uh, you know, this is just like, really? Really, it's that much in your face. It's huge conflict of interest. Okay, we've got a little bit more um, here. This is um, that she's been producing reports. So a lot of detail. People can freeze this on screen, but we've got the Department of Health. Uh, it's talking about the response to Raj Long's independent report. And it kicks off with global action against dementia team within the UK Department of Health. And that was set up as part of the UK's leadership in international dementia policy. Well, the UK can't lead in Ukraine, but apparently it can lead in international dementia. Uh, but the point you're making, I think, with this text is to show that if people do research this lady, they can find that while she's not a qualified doctor, as you say, she has got fingers in all sorts of pies. Uh, and we, we've got several questions to ask about what's happening. But, um, have you got a particular comment on the dementia angle that she's involved with here? Yeah, I've got plenty to say about that, but maybe we'll leave that for another time. But it's very concerning that Moderna will be rolling out mRNA vaccines for cancer and dementia. So, you know, we need to keep an eye on, on this lady. She's a very powerful lady. And like you've quite rightly said, who is she? Yes, well, that's the question. So we just had on screen there, uh, one of the headlines that are becoming ever more prevalent, finding a path for the cure for dementia. And let's remember it was David Cameron who seemed to be able to look in the future and say by a particular time, I think it was something like 2025, he reckoned there would be 2 million people suffering from dementia in UK, but nobody could ever find the baseline for that amazing prediction. But here you're pointing out that all of a sudden even dementia is now going to be 
linked in with so-called miraculous vaccine cures. Well, who puts the money into uh, MHRA? And uh, you were very interested in a particular video clip. I think we've shown it before, but I think it's worth us bringing it up again, uh, where a gentleman was calmly saying that uh, the MHA, MHRA had received money from Bill and Melinda Gates. Let's just have a little, little listen to this film clip. Hello, I'm Ian Hudson, the CEO of the MHRA. We're delighted to be working with the WHO and the Gates Foundation on this very important initiative, which will see the launch of some new medicines to treat some serious public health threats. The launch of these new medicines requires robust regulatory systems and processes to be in place, and we're delighted to be able to help with the development and deployment of these new systems. Thank you. So, Debbie, how, how do you feel about that when we, we get a, a mix of the MHRA developing new systems, but it's also taking money from agencies like Bill and Melinda Gates? Well, what's interesting about that is that even though that was a couple of years ago, clearly, as you're going to see shortly, uh, we are very much being funded by the Bill and, Mel Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In fact, so much that it's uh, mentioned on the board meeting um, that was only held on Tuesday. So very much on the agenda. Bill Gates is in there. And this, this is not something that's, uh, that's going away. What we see is an e even closer liaison between the MHRA, which is supposed to protect public health by being independent. Um, but with the other hand, it's joining forces with uh, the pharmaceutical industry and helping them to develop markets overseas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, right. Now, this should be a very tiny clip, a very, very tiny clip, but it's the MHRA board meeting uh, where they're talking about interests. And Raj Long, as one particular individual, does, does get a mention here. Now, all we're saying is uh, to our audience is that if you go to look at these uh, board meeting videos, there is a huge amount of information about the relationship between the individuals, uh, their own particular interests. And we feel this is all information that the public should be fully aware of. So we're certainly not suggesting this lady's done anything wrong. We are interested in uh, who is who and what their particular interests are. I hope this is the right clip. Let's see what we've got. You've been here that she's been appointed as an associate non-executive director for the UK Health Security Agency, UK HSA. Okay, so that, that was very short. We're going to point the audience at the, uh, at the various uh, timestamps from this particular board meeting um, so that uh, you can pick up on this detail as well. Now, this should be Jane, uh, June Rain um, talking about the expectation of 100,000 yellow card reports. But of course, we now know that yellow card uh, reports listed are way above this. Let's uh, see whether uh, she is saying the right things here. We adapted our pharmacovigilance further, building on the yellow card, establishing a vaccine monitor to look in more intense detail at a cohort. And that's going to be very important for areas such as pregnancy, but also using advanced digital tools 
artificial intelligence to sift through reports. We had expected 100,000. We're now over 400,000. We can't employ enough scientists and clinicians and statisticians to deal with each one. And so the tools of artificial intelligence support picking up trends. And then the minds can be usefully employed on what they're telling us. And as you might expect, we're picking up and running with what the life sciences vision has suggested. We're concerned, of course, about things like TTS, the thrombotic thrombocytopenia syndrome. But will the clue be in genetics? And so we're going to be establishing a yellow card biobank out of the yellow card data, enabling us to look for those genetic clues, marry it up with, I think you can see in the next slide, our electronic healthcare records for phenotype. And then researchers will be able to come to us and say, look, let's, let's look at the data you have, use the linkages, and ultimately, if we strike gold, there will be screening tools that enable genetic uh, uh, aspects to be screened out. No more TTS, which has been a source of such concern to all of us. And then to our offer, and I think this is where Alistair would have been so pleased, building on all of this to deliver an innovative licensing and access pathway. What does that truly mean? Well, Debbie, we had to leave that little, uh, the last little bit of that clip in because it was the sheer excitement in her voice when she moved from something which should be critical to the public, which is adverse reactions and, and ultimately the effect on people's health. Uh, she moves on to the much more exciting topic of innovation in licensing. And of course, that is the very vehicle by which the MHRA gets even more funding to help it do what it, it does. I'm very cynical about that relationship with the profit-making side of the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry. Well, the whole board meeting yesterday was actually pretty much talking more about their finances, their audits, their agendas and, and, and the money um, in, in general, rather than anything to do with adverse reactions. But the fact that she's just said on there, and, and I think Sir Christopher Chope would be very interested to hear that, is that she's saying that they expected 100,000 adverse reactions. Well, if they expected 100,000 adverse reactions, why weren't there any um, systems put in place to deal with these people who are suffering with these adverse reactions? And quite clearly, she's acknowledging they were very worried about thrombocytopenia and clots, but yet still nothing's done, still the vaccine gets rolled out, still nothing stops. And Debbie, you were able, you, you were actually, at participating as a Zoom participant in the board meeting. So you were able to get a question in, which we can bring up on screen here. Uh, so you said, my question for this board, re-patient safety, is if Dame June Rain and MHRA were expecting 100,000 ADRs COVID-19 vaccine, why wasn't there a system in place with which to help those affected directly before rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines? What responsibility do MHRA have directly to members of the public who've suffered harm as a result of following your advice to take the vaccine? Thank you. So what reply did you get to that? Nothing. And that, that says it all, doesn't it? Because we now that we've got an increasing number of people coming forward suffering very serious vaccine adverse effects. And as we showed on the news yesterday, we've had the first payment uh, payment out for a death uh, from a vaccination. 
and yet the response from the MHRA itself is, is non-existent. Uh, well, we've got a couple more clips, which we'll just show these briefly, and we're encouraging our audience to really pay attention to what the MHRA says about themselves. Let's have a look at the first. The report this month does record some really interesting areas in science research and innovation. The uh, focus up to now, as you know, has been very much on access and safety, but um, work is progressing well with our yellow card biobank. CPRD Sprint's got a couple of um, actual studies underway, and uh, there's work on polo eradication that's progressing really well and is being um, showcased by uh, international uh, organizations to, to show what the agency's capability is, which is fantastic. And uh, CEPI has continued to work, and not only that, extend the contracts um, for MHRA. So really important role of science research and innovation coming from the agency. But our focus on access is always a key deliverable. Um, the fact that we authorised a COVID-19 vaccine on the basis of immunobridging data means that uh, lots of inquiries and requests for scientific advice have been flowing in and uh, colleagues will be well aware of the current focus on the rising number of monkeypox cases so access to a suitable vaccine and an antiviral uh, and the support for companies who can deliver these has been a really key role of our healthcare quality access team. Uh, Debbie, none of this to me seems to be talking about patient safety, but biobank is a term that you've highlighted before. Why should people be concerned about the MHRA's reference to the biobank system? Well, I very quickly want to rush through a few things because I literally am about to lose charge and I'm not going to be able to reconnect. So the two things are yellow, uh, yellow card biobank is for genetics only so people think that they've been rerouted into yellow car biobank doesn't mean to say they're going to get any help it just means the researchers are looking at genetic links and genomic links the big thing there is polio and i know you're going to come on and show a video um and this is dr mark bailey that i want you to to, to see because this is exclusive footage of the mhra board meeting nobody has seen this before next footage of the um, Dr. Mark Bailey, I just want to explain that polio is in the news. They're going to be tracking people house to house. They're going to be promoting polio vaccines. And I just want to alert everybody that this is going to be the next rollout. This is going to be the next increase. And there's a lot to say about polio, but I'm just very well aware that if we lose connection, then you'll be able to follow on with my um, MHRA board meeting clips. Okay, thank you. Let's have a look at Dr. Mark Bailey. Significant investment by NIPS and also its partners, the Gates Foundation, and of course, it's part of the WHO expert lab in uh, for basically polio eradication. Um, there are three strains of polio, and we've uh, the team at NIPS developed three different vaccines. It happens that strain two has been one that's been deployed most in uh, clinical trials in Africa, and it's listed product by the WHO, which means it can be used in emergency situations, even though it's not approved. Um, we're now moving to clinical trials with the other two strains as well. 
So it's very exciting. It's a huge combination. Its effect is that this vaccine cannot revert. So the um, Salk vaccine that was used for most of us as kids, there's always a low chance of it reverting back to the uh, wild type, which means that polio begins to uh, appear in the population. This is a great leap forward here. It can't revert, so it basically it's much safer. Yeah, you see, I, I think, again, just another example of how the MHRA is different from other regulators around the world, because we have NIBSC, or National Institute of Biological Standards and Control, where we can actually do some basic uh, you know, you know, fundamental research. And this is a good example of, of, of the work that we're doing in that area and, and the public health uh, benefit it can have internationally and not just in, in the UK. So I think actually as a regulator, we've got some really important uh, you know, constituent parts that actually uh, yeah, make us a, a very strong and capable organisation. Uh, well, there you have it. In, in my opinion, what they're actually saying is that the MHRA is proud to be used, uh, proud to be working, uh, using the public essentially as the guinea pig to try out pharmaceutical products and vaccines. It isn't they're tested safe before they're used. Uh, this is all part of the experimentation process. Debbie, I'm watching the clock very carefully. We've overrun a little bit. I want to do due, uh, give. Uh, uh, justice to this uh, section. So we just carry on with some of the uh, slides that you've got. But when we hear the MHRA talking, their excitement is always in the working with the pharmaceutical industry, the innovation, the partnerships, the money coming in from Bill Gates. There is no enthusiasm for safety issues around protecting public health. No. None whatsoever. And, you know, this whole polio agenda, if, if you remember rightly, when we were kids, we got polio on a on a, a sugar cube and that's what's called the Salk vaccine. Now they're trying to um, develop new vaccines in this country and they're going to appear to target children. And I'm sorry if that's a little bit disjointed from from um, your question, but I had to disconnect and I reconnected. So I missed a little tiny bit of what you of what you said but what does concern me hugely is that everyone's talking about polio vaccines and so go and get your children vaccinated that's going to be the message and another subject that i know that we're going to talk about next week in the news is immune imprinting which is all these different vaccines we're none of us going to have the same reaction depending on what variant what vaccine what medication what medical history how old we are so immune imprinting is next coming down the line. And I can see that the MHRA are just going to be pushing out more and more and more of these medicines according to their life sciences agenda, because we are the human guinea pigs. You know, the UK are the, at the centre of this and we they couldn't do it without the MHRA. OK, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Uh, well, I'm just going to put this uh, a couple of the uh, slides on screen to reinforce what you've said. So this is Pulse with a headline GP, sorry, GP's urge to check patients vaccination status after polio virus detected in UK. Um, you can freeze the screen and have a look at the information here. They're talking about also talking about vaccine derived polio virus. Um, this is something which uh, we will be talking uh, with uh, Debbie will be talking to you about and uh, obviously informing our viewers and listeners. 
national incident declared after health officials find traces of polio. The UK is considered by the World, World Health Organization to be polio free. And now we've got these uh, incidences appearing. And we've even got talk about uh, further interesting connections um, through to uh, polio. So this is a, acute uh, flaccid paralysis information for patients. Certain viruses are known to cause AFM or AFP, including polio virus and non-polio ent uh, enterovirus. So we're getting a little bit medical here, but these warnings now are just coming up and up in front of the public. And clearly somebody knows that something is coming. Just a final comment, uh, Debbie, and then we will have to close. Yeah, well, there is so much more to say about this board meeting, but acute uh, flaccid paralysis is um, it's often linked with polio. Um, it gives the the uh, symptoms like Guillain-Barr transverse myelitis, and we've seen a rise in it in the UK. But obviously, we need to be looking very closely at this story running forward. And, you know, one thing that we haven't mentioned is that the MHRA don't give any data on children or adolescents or youngsters serious adverse reactions. So we don't know how many children have been affected, how many adolescents have been affected. We have absolutely no idea. So we need to be knowing this data. But this, this whole polio agenda, I know that we'll cover in much more detail. And also um, the uh, vaccine acquired immunity as well, um, immune bridging, immune imprinting, all of these things are for the future, but quite clearly the agenda has not gone away. Okay, we'll be covering more on this, but uh, Debbie, thank you very much for that segment. And if you didn't pick it up, uh, Debbie's saying quite rightly that the uh, MHRA board meeting video there, exclusive to us, because at the moment the MHRA has not published their own video, but we're going to try and make that video available to the UK column audience in advance of MHRA publishing it. Now, unfortunately, we have to end, but Alex, I'm just going to ask you to talk us through the Daily Beast, because I think you picked up on a uh, humorous clip, or is it dark humour? Tell us about it. It's uh, an American site that would claim it's putting an ironic twist on things. It derives its title, of course, from Scoop, the interwar novel by Evelyn Waugh. Uh, about journalists getting up to hijinks abroad. And uh, the, the newspaper that uh, stars in that charade of a novel is called The Daily Beast. But it now, is now a title of, if I remember correctly, a West Coast title in the US. They would claim it's all tongue in cheek how they write things up. But I have deliberately put the substance before the headline here because we're going to close on the headline just to give you an idea of what's going on in the media. So The Daily Beast reports in the meat of its piece, and it's talking about the main evening talk show on Russian TV. Uh, by Mr. Solovyov. During his show, Solovyov, so this this uh, chat show anchor, introduced a clip of Zhirinovsky, um, former member of the State Duma. This is this oppositionist I talked about, no notorious for his odious statements. Zhirinovsky insisted that the Baltics and Ukraine would be occupied and controlled by Russia. The host referred to the politi politician as a political prophet. Now, in order to see how seriously we are to take this, gentlemen, just look at the next paragraph. 
Solovyov was bitterly complaining about the sanctions and the seizure of his mansions on the shores of Lake Como in Italy. Solovyov suggested, if we're going to be enlarging, if we need auto parts, for example, let's enlarge toward the places where those factories are located. I'm still peeved about my Lake Como mansion too. Let's enlarge in that direction. So unless you think that the Russians are threatening to invade Italy over the Alps, as they did in 1848 or Switzerland, um, then you're not to take this very seriously. But bring the slide back on screen because... How has this been given a headline by the Daily Beast? Here it comes. Kremlin cronies say Putin is ready to go full Kim Jong-un. Rubric, rogue state of mind. Subheader, Putin's puppets have dropped all pretense that Russia is a law-abiding nation, threatening to unleash chaos and emulate the unhinged nuclear threats of North Korea. A bit of a winning headline, I think, in the fake news stakes. OK, Alex, thank you very much for that. I'm going to say, Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. And Mark Anderson, also, I know that you'll be desperate for a coffee now. It's still very early in the morning for you. But Mark, thank you very much for joining us. I would have loved to have talked to you all for longer, but we need to end today's news here. And just to say once again, no extra time today, um, but uh, that will recommence um, as, as normal. We just have something on today. So thank you very much to all our viewers, listeners and supporters. We can only do what we do with your financial support and uh, donations and memberships gratefully received. Thank you. Bye bye.